Welcome to Someone Else's Movie, the podcast where an actor, writer, director, or nebulous industry figure gives a little love to a movie they didn't make. I'm Norm Wilner, senior film writer for Now Magazine, and this is The Other Thing I Do. My guest this week is Natalie Brown, an actor you'll have probably seen on such shows as The Strain, Sophie, Happy Town, Cracked, Being Human, Bitten, Dark Matter, and Channel Zero, and recently, hopefully, if you were lucky enough, on the big screen in Jeremy Lalonde's How to Plan an Orgy in a Small Town, along with half a dozen other friends of the show, including last episode's guest, Mark O'Brien. She's currently starring in Jovanka Vukovic's The Box, the first segment of the new horror anthology XX, which starts its Canadian theatrical run this Friday, February 17th. Natalie picked Strictly Ballroom, Baz Luhrmann's 1992 breakout starring Paul Mercurio as a maverick dancer who'll do anything to conquer the Australian Pan Pacific Championships, even invent radical new steps. But everything changes when he meets the withdrawn Fran, played by Tara Morris, and discovers her father's ferocious flamenco skills. Stylistically unfettered and almost manic in its presentation, this movie went off like a bomb on the festival circuit 25 years ago, establishing Lerman as a potent cinematic force and giving Australian camp a foothold in the art house. I should point out that Natalie had also considered Rob Stewart's Sharkwater as a possible pick, but we decided that the recent news of Rob's death would make it a little difficult to focus on the film, rather than the man. But it comes up anyway. You'll see. This is someone else's movie. You said it doesn't have to be a movie you love, because if it's a movie you love, that's a different list. Sure. If it's a movie you can't believe got made, but obviously impacted you in some way. And I remember this being one of the first movies that, like, was confounding, just because it was, I don't know, it just seemed so over-the-top and silly, but also I have a dance background, so I, you know, was brought up on dance movies. It was Flashdance and Saturday Night Fever. Probably too young to have been watching Saturday Night Fever, but anyway... (laughs) Um, and this is sort of the same kind of story of, like, you know, uh, Saturday Night Fever um, with, you know, Cinderella thrown in. Sure. But just outlandish to think, I don't know how, how, how do you convince financiers to fund a movie about, like, ridiculous ballroom dancing, you know, in this farcical way. And then I only really found out more about the movie now, looking into it. But right. just when they say, write what you know, I don't know if anyone else could have ever made this movie. It is unique, right? Like, I mean, I remember seeing it in 92 at TIFF. Um, right. They gave us videotapes in the olden days. To screen. Uh, yeah, the yeah. Uh, the distributor, CF, it was CFP then. I think now it would be Maple? They don't even exist anymore. They've all been absorbed into the, into the Entertainment One conglomerate. But the, this tiny little distributor had that and Reservoir Dogs. And oh, wow. those were their two films going into 1992 And they TIFF. launched careers of the... Yeah. Huge, massive. Two amazing yeah. filmmakers, yeah. But they got them through their, through their agreement with Miramax, and so it was like day two of the festival, and, and someone handed me these cassettes and said, this is like, we'll set up interviews, but watch these. And, you know, you couldn't pick two more different <laughs> Two films. more disparate types of films, but, but... Yeah, but Strictly Ballroom, I mean, I remember, I was familiar with Australian cinema, and, and I knew some New Zealand stuff. I was, I was aware of the sort of exaggerated camp thing that they do. Right. But I had forgotten, until we watched Strictly Ballroom again, just how assaultive it is. Like the faces are <laughs> oh, yeah. just ballooning so, up into the screen. Like just Yeah, just like villainous, really. And then, um, but it, it had already premiered at Cannes, though, right? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Because and Reservoir Dogs had played Sundance as well, I think. Oh, okay. This was a, sort of the last stop before theatrical. 
because I think, um, I mean, it was difficult to get funded for a variety of reasons and they wanted someone else to direct and they wanted to make this like naturalistic movie with the subplot of uh, the unions. And then he kind of did the, the thing that Stallone did. It's like either I direct it or it doesn't get made. <laughs> but then the guy who was financing the movie, I think died. And it was the wife who had seen it as a play because Baz Luhrmann wrote the play. Right. Right. So uh, she had seen the play and then the husband passed away. So she said, I think in his honor, we have to make sure it's made. But then they couldn't get funding. And if they didn't change the story, which they didn't, stuck to his gun. So it's all that, you know, it's the David and Goliath story in the making of, not just in the film's content. Yeah. But then when he had screened it, there like someone had walked out and said, your career's done before it even started. And then when it premieres at Cannes, it's like 15 minutes standing ovations and... Yeah, it's just like, it's just a in-your-face, feel-good movie that still, I just remember, like, not really being able to believe what I was watching. But, you know, his mother was a ballroom dancer and, and a costumer, and I don't think anyone else could have told that story like he could. Oh, and that was, that was the other thing. Before getting the final financing, I think he had made, like, little vignettes and brought in costumes and did some performances, and they had said, had he not done that, if it was just based on the script alone, it never would have gotten made. So he created like a lookbook, but yeah, a living like book. a three-dimensional lookbook mm-hmm. with performances and costumes, and um, so yeah. And I, like I said, just having like my own little small town cheesy dance background, it really appealed to me. <laughs> and I didn't realize until going back looking at it, I always thought that the movie introduced me to flamenco, which I've always been fascinated by. Okay, <clears throat> and seen dances in Spain and I mean some in Mexico as well and my boyfriend's sister is a flamenco singer so I've been to a lot of amazing flamenco shows over the past 10 years um, I thought yeah it was Strictly Ballroom that really introduced me but it's not it's the Paso Doble which borrows right. from flamenco um, and her father like that dance off between the two men like yeah. I just I just love it it's just like the best camp it's it's bizarre to watch I mean it's always weird to watch a movie create its own language to, to say, you know, like, there's never been something like this before. Right. And it teaches you how to watch it as you're watching it. And, you know, we're introduced to Paul Mercurio's character as just this kind of insanely focused... I, every time I look at him, I see, like, a giant Guy Pierce, which is just weird. He's got right. like that bone structure. Yeah. That really precise cheekbones and jaw thing. And in in the last viewing, it was, it was bizarre because Pierce is sort of at war with... with uh, Mercurio in my head because I keep expecting to do different things more Guy Pierce stuff oh right it's just really jarring and, and I can't there was no precedent for a film like this mm-hmm. when it opened it's just now you can say I mean yeah now there's been the adventures of Priscilla and there, there have been other films that have built on this and done the same sort of things which was did it predate or that came out a few years later Two years uh, later, I think. A couple of years later, yeah. Yeah, because the only maybe. name in this movie was, I'm forgetting the... Oh, Barriato. Father. Not the father. His, his... Sorry, no. Um, um, he played, like, the, the the head judge or the head of the dance association. Oh, No, that's... Hunter. This is, He's in this Priscilla, he and he was the only known name in cinema, because they also said you're never going to get this made, because it was all unknowns. Yeah, Bill Hunter. Bill Hunter, yeah. But just, again, it's like that sticking to your guns to do things so outside the box, like the lead character like Lerman was insisting on. And that's when you have things that break the mold. I was just telling the story yesterday because I had the good fortune of meeting Stan Lee. Oh, yeah. Only because um, the strain was launching at the same time that he was in town for Fan Expo. And he told the story of Spider-Man. He had this idea of Spider-Man, and he pitched it to his boss, and his boss said, well, that's a terrible idea for three reasons. 
for one thing, superheroes don't have personal problems. They're superheroes. Mm. Secondly, no one's interested in a teenage superhero. And thirdly, people hate spiders. I figured that would be one of them. Yeah, well, yeah, that, was like, that was the main thing. So he said, no, no, no. No. And the magazine that he was working for was going under. And so Stan said to one of his colleagues, he said, well, what's the quickest way to kill this thing so we can get another job? Because he didn't go ahead with Spider-Man because he wanted to keep his job. And then when the magazine was folding, he said, let's just run Spider-Man and right. be done with it and move on. So they put Spider-Man on the cover. And it was the biggest selling issue they ever had. Kept it in business, launched his career. But had he, be, had he been beholden to focus groups or the paradigm of what will please the most amount of people, whether it's star names or whether it's, you know. So I just think it's interesting because that's the lesson that you keep learning is when you don't follow rules, whether you're the main character or the filmmaker mm -hmm. or the idea person. And that's when we get things that, you know, stick with us. Yeah, it's it's sort of the argument. There's the argument that um, how do they put it? If you tell a story that's personal enough, it becomes universal because everyone yes. can relate to that yeah, specificity. Yeah, because it's so, such a cliche. Yeah. We've seen the story with Ugly Duckling or Cinderella or whatever. You know, take off her glasses and put on some makeup. I mean, it's but it also pokes fun at the cliche too. Mm -hmm. But yes, told so personally, it becomes unique. Yeah, and her family issues, which are ridiculous aren't because they're still the same dynamic of I grew up Italian Catholic for yeah. the most part so I can relate to not really being let out of the house to sure. go dancing like if I got grounded I wasn't allowed to go to the dance which is perhaps another reason why it resonated with me because that's all I wanted to do and then getting onto Timmins and coming down to hang out with my cousins in St. Catharines we would go over the border to like Niagara Falls Buffalo cause so we could go dancing because mm -hmm. you could be underage to get into the clubs but not drink and that's all I was interested in was dancing so, there you have it. So, when you saw this, um, what was your first experience of it? I'd forgotten. Um, I had to actually do the math on the year. So, when it came out, because I said, how was I introduced to this movie? Because <clears throat> living in Timmins, I was not a cinephile. We had one movie theater. Mm -hmm. So, I would, you know, see whatever movies would come, which were mostly, like, blockbusters. Sure. And um, the, the year that this came out, I was in Japan. I had an opportunity to model in Japan, so I traded in my Eastside Mario's uniform in Timmins, where I was happy to be working to make some money for university, and I had this opportunity to go to Tokyo. So I went from Timmins to Tokyo, a stopover in Texas, and the movie came out, and a lot of my roommates were Australian. I moved out of the model apartments because I wanted more of a cultural experience, and uh, so I moved into this... Uh, flat with people from all over Europe that were there to make money for traveling and a lot of the people were Australian and they're the ones that introduced me to this movie. Yeah. It was a sensation there. Like, oh, know, yeah. In Australia. It was, it was a huge. massive, massive. I think it's like the largest grossing movie ever to this day. Oh, no, Crocodile Dundee. Sure. But it was made for three million and grossed 80 worldwide. Yeah. Yeah. Which is, again, something that is still hard to believe in a strange, strange way. That that first that Lerman could connect to an audience on this level because his stuff is so weird and idiosyncratic but then that's all he does is he just you know uh, William Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet and Moulin Rouge these are huge heart throbby kind of films and right. this is his first go at it and I had forgotten just how grainy and filmy it looks it looks like it was made with ends you know it's not it's not a polished film right the camera is much more spastic than it will be in his other work where it's you know there are dollies and tracks and everything right. but this one is just somebody picking it up and throwing the camera at somebody right and then even with a documentary style with like going like throwing yeah. interviews 
that also, I, I don't remember seeing anything like that before that, like mixing the two yeah. sort of docudrama style. I um, was trying to remember how it felt to watch that because it just, it's disconnecting in a weird way. It's like, why, why is this a documentary? Because it isn't after about half an hour. They never come back to it. It just stops right. and it becomes oh, that, its own thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, you know, District 9 did that too. So maybe there's just some sort of Antipodean thing where if you're low enough on the, not low enough, but if you're further south on, on the hemisphere, then <laughs> right. you just accept these these transitional ideas. Write your own rules, I guess. Yeah, but that's it too. You have the sense while you're watching it that he is just making it up as he goes along because he can't not. I guess, I mean, as far as like the style of it. And yet mm. some of it seems so polished because I think he had that opportunity to, like he'd, he'd, he'd staged it already. Like he, you know, he'd written it as a play, mm-hmm. put it on stage a couple of times. He mounted it a couple of times. Um, and so it actually felt like he made it exactly the way he wanted to. Maybe perhaps with limited funds, though. Maybe he, sure. he learned as he went along. Yeah. Yeah, if, if that's what you mean. And it does, yeah, it feels like a discovery in that way because I don't even know that he knew how he was going to, what it would look like when it was when it was finished. Right, because he hadn't really worked in film. Mm-hmm. So it's funny that he just insisted on directing it. Yeah. It's almost like, again, the less you know, the better. The hubris that it takes yeah. before knowing what it is you're getting into um yeah yeah like that, that, that's also like on your side yeah it's unsophisticated in a really sophisticated way because it has this whole language of of theatrical presentation right and the, in red, your the face. red curtain heightened reality thing that he right. does but also at the same time these people shouldn't be dancing with that hair and with the, the these <laughs> strange <laughs> costumes and it just feels like a parallel universe is sort of winked into existence while you're watching it. Right. And everybody understands it. Everybody knows in that world that you're watching. That I th- That's the thing that stuns me about Lerman is that there's a common language that all of the characters share that we don't necessarily, we're not privy to it, mm-hmm. but we understand that they understand it. Right. So which that's makes all it accessible. It, exactly. That's in a way. all it takes. Yeah. yeah. All this stuff about the Bogo Pogo, which which can only be delivered in the most ludicrous acts of the Bow Gow Pow Gow. Yeah. And there's a cut scene on the on the DVD. There's a there's a deleted scene that just looks like it's been run over by a truck repeatedly. It's all scrapped and, oh. and terrible. And it is simply and is it doing... it's Wayne wanting to know about the bugger bugger, and he's even more pronounced. It's just like <laughs> it's like the payoff to the joke that's been going on for the right. whole movie. Right. And we never see it. <laughs> we never find out. Yeah, what but it I is. need the DVD. Yeah, it's yeah. quite something. It's on the apparently it's on the Blu-ray as well. Okay. Um, which I also looks... need a Blu-ray player. Well, yeah. Kind of like skipped over the Blu-ray and then went right to MP3s. Yeah, VOD. VOD. The iTunes world. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, because I've been been getting some Blu-rays. I'm like, I can't. Like, even to get the strain, I'm like, I don't have a (laughs) Blu-ray. So what's the point of getting hard copies, which they hardly make anymore, but... Yeah. Well, um, I mean, this is a shrine to physical media here, so I'm not going to... It is a literal shrine to I'm going to defend them, yeah. Blu-ray's great. I mean, every television set now is an HD set, so it'll, right. it'll just it's look better. It's meant for it. Yeah. Blu-ray players aren't expensive anymore. I mean, it's not that hard. No, I, mine still has, actually, my DVD player is also um, VHS. <laughs> it's oh, still the dual. Old school. And I thought, because we still have some VHS copies kicking around, so, and my boyfriend, I mean, bless him, but he grew up in, like, first-generation immigrant household with, like, eight kids and not a lot of television, and so he'd never seen E.T. and he'd never seen Star Wars. Oh. So now that Star Wars is having... Um, you know, this whole resurgence of, like, you have to see the first or before you can... So I said, let's watch Return of the Jedi. And I pulled out my brother's 
original VHS copy and put it into our VHS player and it just ate the tape. Yeah. It was so sad. It was the worst sound in the world. I'm like, I'm so sorry. I can't replace this, but... Um, yeah, so moving on, stack the Blu-ray on top of the... Yeah, just add one. Dual VHS player. One more switch. There's a... Yeah, there's a VCR right over there, too. I, I mean, we do have everything. You have to be able to watch. Yeah. I still have an HD DVD player. Uh, the red... a beta? Do you have a beta player? No, it died. I it died. Yeah. With the piano keys, the giant... You can't, you giant... can't repair them, right? No, there's no point. I mean, it's right. also... They look horrible. Yeah, like, what was the point? Like, well, they never looked so, better, but... No. Well, I think the problem at the time was that the television sets just weren't sophisticated enough to show the difference. Beta did have more resolution, but the TVs right. were terrible. Right, okay, yeah, So, yeah. and now that everything is at this point of, like, 1080, um, where, like, that monitor, that computer monitor is more sophisticated than most television sets that I owned before. So the resolution on something this size is good? Oh, yeah. I believe you. Yeah. It's, it's a, so big. It's a Blu-ray. <laughs> I mean, you, it'll play 1080. It looks great. Wow. You just have to have the big honking projector to right. make it work. What was the first movie you chose to watch on this? Uh, we tested it with um, uh, Shaun of the Dead. Okay. Which is a personal favorite. Okay. But the first thing we watched was the, the hip concert. Oh. Because uh, that was the weekend we set oh, it up. Oh, that's so great. Yeah, we had some people over. I know, because a lot of thought has to go right. into, like, what are you going to, you know. Yeah. Because the first television I paid for, because I got hand-me-downs forever that were still the old tube TVs. And so when I bought my first flat screen, I thought, okay, pressure's on. What's it going <laughs> to be? And so I wanted to watch Chinatown. Uh-huh. It's a great, you know, sure. classic movie. And it just, it was my first experience, well, second, because my uncle had this giant flat screen, and I remember watching, I forget, it was like a George Clooney movie where I thought, why does the acting look so weird? Mm-hmm. You know, when you're watching something not intended for... Uh, HD, right? And you have that sort of like flattened experience where things start to look like soap acting. Oh, that, yeah. And Chinatown was just throwing me because I'm like, why does the, why do the performances look so strange? Mm. And I can't believe I'm going to admit this to you on tape. But after watching that, it was a rainy afternoon, and I'm the, I turned the movie off. It came onto like the movie network, and it was again, it was raining, so I was stuck inside, and Twilight was on. Oh no. But again, it was like shot in HD and meant for HD. Right. And so it's just no way to live. No, but it's like, why does this look better? Why is Twilight looking better on my television than Chinatown? It's probably that the TV had the... Um, uh, Ryan Johnson talks about this. He says he, he calls himself a TV ninja. He will go into, you know, if he's in an electronic store or if a friend's house, wherever he is, if right. he sees them, he'll he'll fix the televisions and get the, the demo settings off because they're basically... They're shipped with the Vivid edge on correction. Blast. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> edge correction and edge enhancement and, and motion smoothing and all that stuff. And it's right. just horrible. It makes everything look like a football game or a soap opera. Yeah. 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 So I can fix that. Oh, absolutely. Great. You can walk it through. It's <laughs> Good easy. to know. Yeah. Just turn off anything that's over, I think it's the, the 120 hertz or something. There's there's a frame rate thing. You just okay. turn that off. Oh, this is good news. No, it's all oh, great. It's no way to live. Are you writing that down? <laughs> We can get we can get you through it, Thank you. but but um, I'm trying to think figure out a way to bring it back to uh, to Lerman. Yes. But what I was going to say is that his stuff I'd actually be kind of curious to see how that plays in an artificial enhanced mode, because it's already so it's, yeah. over the top and 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 vibrant. You know the colors are saturated and the the reds are redder than they should be and the and the already. sequins are popping yeah already so yeah he's already doing that he's making those movies right demo mode is it possible to be more over the top than it already looked to begin with yeah um, well certainly with stuff like the great gatsby he's doing that now where yeah. it's just complete overkill well when you know what to expect like i had actually 
before the movie was coming out, I had read the book just for fun on the plane. It's like a great short read. And, mm-hmm. um, and then when I saw it, I thought, I'm going to just, I'm not, there's no comparisons to be made. You know what your, you know what your ticket buys you. Yeah. And for me, it's just, you know, like a visual buffet. And so I'm, I wasn't disappointed. Like a lot of people were disappointed in Gatsby, whereas yeah. I just feel like I just want to go in for like a big drink. And right. that's all I'm expecting. You know? Yeah. It's the, the, the world is realized with, exquisite detail because mm-hmm. that's his thing yeah but of course Baz Luhrmann falls victim to the like it's the same thing that happens every time someone tries to adapt Gatsby which is that they don't realize that if you made the movie the way the book is written it would be depressing and sad and everyone just gets swept up in the parties right so of course the man who made Strictly Ballroom and Moulin Rouge is going to want to hang out at the parties but right it gets the film gets seduced by Gatsby the same way that the, the character same way do, the character does, but it doesn't pull back. It doesn't right. snap back into reality at the end. Right. So it just feels like a Empty. it goes wide in a weird way. Yeah. I mean, I thought and the three D I found really unnecessary and effective, except yeah. in one scene. I'm scene pearls. Yeah. <laughs> I, sure. Of course you can, but nothing wrong with pearls in the air up for grabs. Yeah. It's nifty. For a second, but yeah, it just it doesn't actually add anything to the experience, except in one scene, the scene in the Plaza Hotel where everyone is sitting around, sniping at each other. That was the one time I felt that this is what 3D could be. You could actually be in the room, in the room with the characters. It's not about the objects coming at your face. It's mm. actually about immersion and interplay. with the characters yeah. instead of objects. That's interesting. Yeah, and yeah. that one scene was the thing that I wanted for the rest of Gatsby. I mean, imagine somebody making a movie about melancholy where you're just Trapped with it. Or you're suffocating. It. <laughs> yes. Well, that doesn't end so well for everybody. No. Um, but, so you were left sort of feeling yeah. as I empty as... Yeah, I mean, I as... completely understand why Lerman would want to make it. Mm-hmm. And I also understand that he probably shouldn't have. He's, he's maybe the wrong person to do it. Yeah. I don't know who better yeah. would you choose. Stillman. With Stillman. If anyone has to... If there needs to be another Gatsby, I think the guy who made Metropolitan and Last Days of Disco, right. he could probably do it. Oh, okay. He's somebody who, he knows the world and he's tired of it. Like, he doesn't, he wouldn't be seduced by it. Right. And maybe you get to see that West Egg is a little threadbare and that things aren't quite as magical as Gatsby keeps insisting they are. That that could be interesting. Right. Something that leaves you trapped with it. Not seduced by it. No, exactly. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um. And I, and I I was hesitant to actually choose this because, like I said, it's not like I'm like a massive Lerman fan. Mm-hmm. I've enjoyed his movies, but I, w- I did not drink the Romeo and Juliet Kool-Aid. I don't know if it's because of my age. Right. And um, I've never, I mean, I can appreciate that I think Leo is like a, he's a really good actor. He's a very hardworking, good actor. Sure. I've just never been a personal fan. I, I think I missed the boat as far as like I've never found him to be like this, you know, fantasy you know, yeah, I, I, male lead that I've never, you know. So I kind of missed the Romeo and Juliet where so many of my friends that were even a few years younger. Like, I mean, this rocked their world. Like, mm-hmm. literally rocked their world. And the soundtrack and everything. But, um, yeah, like I wasn't a particular fan of that. So I was yeah. like, oh, no, am I going to have to expand upon, you know, all of his films? I mean, I've seen this. I've seen Gatsby. Moulin uh, Rouge? And, of course, Moulin Rouge. Mm-hmm. And, again, I feel like when... Uh, when I know what to expect. It's interesting. I'm, I'm curious. I'm digressing as, as I do. No, so it keeps stirring me back. But were you um, at Now Magazine in the year that um, 
The wind that shakes the barley won the palm door. No, no. That and was given five ends. But also, so was 28 weeks later, was given five ends. And I put a lot of um, faith in the ends that are given to movies. I, sure. I often want to see the things that, you know, because I know there's more than one critic, but you're the senior, so I wondered if it was mm. you. So my boyfriend and I had just started dating, and we went to see When That Shakes the Barley, and I just remember just being a little bit bored. Yeah. You know? I mean, it was just like this bleak, dark, green, you know, story of really mm. IRA, and just not really enjoying it as much, but again, the expectation was there. But then the same rating was given to 28 weeks later, and I'd love 28 days later. I right. thought it was just like this cinematic experience of a zombie movie hadn't been told in that way. Yeah, no, like a camcorder. Yeah, like bringing a camcorder to hell, I think was, oh, was the way I... and it blew my mind. So then I take my book and see 28 weeks later, I'm like, it got five minutes too. And then, but mm-hmm. again, thinking, not, it doesn't matter that I didn't necessarily enjoy them and how did they get the same rating, but it's also going, like, what are you expecting? Like, how does someone give those two movies the same rating? It depends what you're expecting. And sometimes when you expect less... Yeah, you get more. It's reviewed more, open to more positively than something where the expectations are higher. Mm. So all that to say, like Moulin Rouge, I feel like I'm just going in for that visual feast, mm-hmm. and I come out happy. Yeah, my thing with with Moulin Rouge and with uh, Romeo and Juliet is that I like I love covers. I love the idea of taking something apart from the inside and reminding you why it works and what's great about it. And both of those films, simply because they keep insisting on smashing contemporary music into places where it doesn't belong or creating this other world you know just naming the having the, the guns named sword but have that be the brand the manufacturer in, in uh, Romeo and Juliet within 30 seconds I'm like oh yeah okay you, you know what you're doing I'm on board let's see where this goes right yeah and having the newscaster open it like that very opening shot two households um, being delivered by a woman on a television newscast is genius right and the audacity of doing it and making it work the same way that in Moulin Rouge that these characters in, you know, 1905 are so progressive that they're singing songs that haven't been written yet. I get it. It works. It's great. Pull yeah. me along. And then it's it's the enthusiasm that carries you away. It's the, you know, it doesn't matter that Jim Broadbent is filling the screen and screaming at you because it's terrifying, but it's exhilarating and it's thrilling. And that's that's the thing he was doing in Strictly Ballroom, too. The face filling cameras and yep. and just the, the energy pulls you along. Um with the later films, I think he's. I find he struggled to kind of keep the energy up. Like Australia. Australia. I didn't see it. I'm sorry. Very good. No, no, I it's just fine. nothing pulled me in. I mean, Australians loved it. Sure, sure. <laughs> it did really well domestically. Yeah. And was... actually, in Europe, I mean, it, it only didn't do well in, in America, but I think it did really well around the world. But yeah. you're saying he, maybe he lost a little enthusiasm well, or took on too much? I think the film that he wants to make is not the film that he made in Australia's case mm. it is simply a giant war movie that is also a cattle drive movie that is also a romance that there's is a also... lot of literal ground to cover yeah. when you're trying to pay homage to your country which is a continent you yes. know there's yes. yeah there's so much and much. to do it by way of Red River um, which doesn't really transpose when you also end with Pearl Harbor basically I mean with, with the attack um, that is the equivalent of Pearl Harbor a right. sneak attack by the Japanese in Australia but he Ah, you can feel it almost working so many times and it's exhausting it's a big long two and three quarter hour experience right. mm-hmm. um, and he shot the works because he could he, here is his opportunity to do this right and I can't blame, blame him, him for it for, exactly yeah. he's an artist he's given the opportunity of course he should take the biggest risk he can mm-hmm. but 
uh, it does not pay off. And there's this sort of delicacy about... I mean, it's very clear that one of the characters is not supposed to survive the film, and then it just doesn't happen. And it's like a shrug. It's the, well, this tested better. That kind of thing. Uh, right. just, oh, see? So perhaps he stopped sticking to his guns and had too many people to answer to when you're spending that amount of money. Well, exactly. You're making a gargantuan movie with Hugh Jackman and Nicole Kidman, and you better deliver something that gets repeat viewings. Right. I mean, if you look at Moulin Rouge... you do Rouge better and, with a smaller budget and lesser-known actors like Strictly Ballroom work better for him than this did. Because yeah. he's not beholden anything or anybody. I would think so. I mean, it's the same thing. It's the same problem with casting DiCaprio as Gatsby. You just... You're married to it. The minute mm. you do that, that's the kind of movie you're making. Mm. As opposed to maybe someone who is better at being unknowable. Because that's not and DiCaprio's strength. No, and it's so hard to come by. Um, not knowing, you know, who it is you're seeing, and that's when you enjoy it more. Like, even, I don't even want to bring it up, but there's a certain movie right now with music and dancing <laughs> that I really enjoyed. Okay. But you're still watching really well-known actors try very hard to do... Right. The... To be other actors. The medium justice. So whether you have got three months to learn how to tap dance, and, you know, kudos, but the sort of shoulders give you away... <laughs> Um, although I bow down to Ryan Gosling for the piano playing. I'm not a piano player. Maybe I would take more issue with his piano playing. But, uh, I mean, I thought his tapping, his hoofy, his alo- the aloofness with which he hoofs was just so impressive. But I can't imagine, you know, would that have been a better movie with more competent, lesser known? I don't know. I mean, you can't even unsee it now because they're both so great in it. Yeah. But, but it's true. I mean, they are being themselves, being Astaire and Rogers or whichever other mm. team you want to apply it to. Mm. There's, yeah, they're sort of struggling with the weight of decades of musicals. Yeah. In a way that maybe McGregor and Kidman didn't in Moulin Rouge. Right. Because they could just embody those types. Right. Yeah. And yeah. I also wonder, I mean, as much as I love Gosling and Stone together, because they bring out each other's weirdness in they, a really yeah. interesting way. Yeah. Maybe that's part of it, too, is that we've seen them together so many times that it does have kind of a diminishing return. Possibly. When you put them in a musical together, it's still going to be those two people in a musical. Right. Instead I mean, it's a gift and a curse because they, they do bring out, you know, they have the familiarity that I think pays some dividends but then also costs in other ways. Yeah. It's a weird place to be. Mm-hmm. But I think that's... I just know that going back to this movie and watching a guy who'd never acted before, but who else could have done that better? I don't know where yeah. you're going to find... I actually had an audition for... I, I studied some flamenco because I was inspired by the non-flamenco dance right. in Strictly Ballroom. And, flamenco adjacent. Yeah, flamenco adjacent. Um, and uh, was taking classes because I'm just in love with the, the music and the articulation. And I also was a tapper, but not so graceful. So I thought flamenco was going to be my jam. Like, this is where you get to make all the noise with all the passion. And, and more. it's more free form. It's like, you know, it's jazz. It's, it's improvised. Mm-hmm. The only problem is I don't quite understand the music. And if you don't understand the rhythms, which are so complicated, it's... The classes I ended up taking were with um, a woman who's known as the voodoo queen of flamenco from Seville, who came here because her husband owns a flamenco club in the Danforth. Okay. And um, she she's the best flamenco dancer and a great teacher, but she only teaches in Spanish. She doesn't speak any English. So I'm trying to... They say if you want to live forever, learn to dance, learn a language and an instrument. <laughs> I didn't quite understand the instrumentation happening, didn't understand the language it was being taught in, or the rhythms. It was just like, oh my God, it was so difficult. But they were casting for a short film about flamenco, and they were torn with, do we go with a flamenco dancer who hasn't acted, or do we try to bring in an actor and teach her some of So I was just struggling to learn as much as I could as a beginner. Um, 
But, I mean, to me, at the end of the day, I'm like, please don't hire me. Please. I mean, and also, those, I think flamenco dancers are actors. Just the very nature well, yeah, of the performance. A, a performance, absolutely. The amount of passion, uh, pathos, and emoting that goes into all the performances. And it was a girl, I think the role went to, whose parents were both flamenco dancers. Yeah. And it just oozes out of her every pore. And I almost just wanted to excuse myself from the audition and just say, please, this is the person to tell your story. But then I think, well, Flashdance is one of my favorite movies. And I couldn't believe it when I found out that oh, the she didn't do the dancer. Yeah. That she was, yeah, Jennifer Mills was the dancer. It's heartbreaking. Um, but yeah, it, it's great when you can get someone you know a little bit less who can tell the story better. Mm-hmm. Well, Tara Morris was a total uh, revelation to me uh, in, in Ballroom. And I didn't realize until this last viewing that she also sings the the cover of Time After Time that they use. Oh, That's really? her. Yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. And oh, it doesn't sound know, anything like Friends. It's not Cindy Lauper. Yeah. No, it's a, a duet version that yeah. they, they re-recorded. And it doesn't sound anything like Fran either, which is what's interesting now. Yeah. Is that you wouldn't know if you didn't stay for the credits and see the, the right. credit and scroll. It's just such an odd thing that they also have her do this. Right. But, oh, that's great. Yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah. Well, I guess it's part of the theater company thing, right? Like, everybody has more than one role, and everybody does more than one thing. Right. And when you need a cover of a Cindy Lauper movie, which at the time would have only been, what, five or six years old, mm-hmm. um, now it feels sort of appealingly retro and almost overused, because time after time is the song that never really went away. Right. But, and everyone thought it would be Girls Just Want to Have Fun, but it's time after time. Yeah. Um, and it shows up in the film, and I was like, oh, I remember this. And then, that's her. That's something else. Oh, wow. Yeah, new discovery. Right. And what did she do before this? Because I wasn't... I think she was a stage actor in Australia, but I... I, I guess they all were. Yeah. They all I, were. I suppose they just culled yeah. it from the theater company. Um, and the actress who played the mother died right before. Oh, that's right. It's, it's dedicated to her. It's it? dedicated to yeah. her and him. The um, the producer who passed away a month before, mm. and then she passed away, I think, the week before at the premiere at Cannes. Oh. so sad. It's yeah. Um, <clears throat> sorry. I'm about to go to the other... The other movie that we almost talked about. <laughs> um, it's been on my mind a lot lately. But I can imagine, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, well, I mean... I'll... Well, only because... Um, we don't have to use this, but... Yeah, no, um, I was going to say, I can but, cut this. But, but Karen Shaw, who's uh, our producer of XX, mm-hmm. was producing Rob Stewart's new oh, movie. Of course. And so when we were at Sundance, all she could talk about was spending the last month learning how to dive with Rob and being really nervous, going, I'm not that good of a diver, and I don't know if I'm your girl because if something goes wrong... Um, you know, but uh, looking forward to this being like the next year of her life and how important this movie is. And so I just feel so much for Karen as mm, well as sure, the yeah. tragedy. Um, yeah. But anyway, sorry. Yeah. Well, well I knew Rob. Movie. I mean, we worked together at Global years and years ago. Oh, you're kidding. Yeah. Uh, Bonnie Laufer, um, uh had me help. She got me on Entertainment Desk back in the 90s. And so okay. we got to know each other. And she would send me out during TIFF with her, B, like, I was her B camera to do other interviews. Oh, cool. Uh, and I would, she wouldn't use me. She'd just use the footage, obviously. But Rob was the camera. Oh, I had no idea. Yeah. No, he was... Um, so when he was on land... Yeah, he oh. was a camera guy. He was he was a huge nerd for HD cameras. And we ended up at um, Palm Springs together. The in, film festival? Yeah, in 2007. He was there with Sharkwater. Yeah. And I was there because I was on the Fapresci jury. Oh. Wow. Um, and we just ended up, uh, my wife uh, came out and joined me, and his partner was there as well. And we ended up in this museum, but we had this massive Roy Lichtenstein exhibit. It was really great. Uh, but that's where they held their party, the second big party. There's this black tie gala on the first Sunday of Saturday, and then the night before the award ceremony, there's another party at the museum. 
And we just ended up like grown-ups somehow. And he was only 27. This was 10 years ago. Yeah. Uh, then, and I would have been 38. Yeah. And we were just kind of aghast that this was a thing we could do. That yeah. We were, both, we were both there for our actual jobs. And right. like we had worked to this situation and he was screening shark water for people in Palm Springs. With a free meal. Yeah. It was <laughs> they feed you with these things. Champagne and Liechtensteins <laughs> and giant uh, like wall size stuff. And it was just so surreal that, you know, like three years ago we'd been just interviewing. Desk job and behind yeah, camp. You know, yeah. Just yeah. talking to people at TIFF and sweating and not being taken seriously by uh, Tony Collette. No. She was very dismissive. It was very sad. Oh, that is very sad. Yeah. It was for um, Japanese Story, the okay. drama where she um, she drives across the outback and, and someone dies, basically. It's a really small film. Right. And yeah, she was just weirdly hostile. It was strange. I think she was just it must have been just day. a blip in her algorithm because I'm sure all the other times. I she's hope a, so. Have you, you, need, you need a redo. I, yeah, I've I never had the opportunity. Collette do over. I would <laughs> she, like one. She owes you. Everyone's got their moment, I guess, but. Darn it. Yeah. Well, and TIFF sucks for that sort of thing. I mean, people just ask me the same question over and over again, and it's a meat grinder. I know, but that's part of the job. I know, but I always feel bad for people who have come in, like basically parachuted in for the day, and they're just exhausted. And it is the same question over and over and over and over. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, At yeah, least yeah. I get to have a different conversation every 10 minutes. You, you know, if, you're, if you're the talent, you have the same one. Mm-hmm. Which, yeah, I always feel bad. You're my that. first, by the way. I haven't... Mm-hmm. I haven't... Because Sundance was great uh, as an experience, but it was it focused on the the four female directors right, yeah. who did all the press, which was great. So we just were kind of there to take it all in for the first time and figure out how to get around and try to find food. Yeah, how, <laughs> how, I've never been to Sundance, but I you understand haven't? it's an alienating experience if you don't have some like if you're not in a posse. There was a bit of a learning curve. I'm not going <laughs> to lie, and. Um, you know, only made more difficult by the fact that it was the worst storm that they had ever experienced. So here's a ski town that got snowed out mm-hmm. or in. Well, I saw the pictures from the Women's March, and I couldn't believe just how much. It snowed it was like chest eight height. to ten feet in two days. I was already thinking I was prepared because it had it had snowed fifty inches over the holidays. I was like, okay, we'll get your snow boots, snow boots ready. But and then it was just this onslaught of eight more feet in in two days. So it was just physically impossible to get around and not knowing your way around and. Thinking, oh, we're only going to be, we could walk to the library theater. This is great. As long as we can walk to the screen, that's the point of being there. But sure. of course, you want to do other things when you're there and, you know, take in more of the festival and um, an $8 ride for an eight-minute ride the first night we got there was the $91 U.S. the next day to try. Like, I ended up missing the, the pre-party with the kids in our film because Utah law states that they can't be in a bar that's oh, licensed, so they couldn't mm-hmm. come to the real pre-party. So it was a pre-pre-party, but I was literally stranded in the middle of a snowstorm, and all the rentals had no, no snow tires. So a friend who said, don't worry, I'll give you a ride, you can't get a cab, but then couldn't pull over and couldn't get up the hill. So, like, in getting to the Planned Parenthood party, which was up at the Kickstarter house up the mountain, you had to walk up, like, 18 flights of stairs on foot because cars couldn't actually get up the hill and I thought let me just let me just not do one thing that you know where we were invited uh, some of the cast was invited I thought let me just try to get a good meal in me before mm-hmm. and then sorry private parties sorry word <laughs> capacity sorry but I was like oh my gosh bring your power bars and your snowshoes and it's great. Yeah, they didn't really prepare for what Sundance would become, right? Like it well, was there just was this, this great, tiny village. There was this great at one of the cafes that's been there the longest, and they donated a lot of the proceeds to different initiatives that are happening for the locals. Mm-hmm. And there's this picture of Robert Redford saying, "Not exactly what I had in mind," <laughs> you know. And the Hollywood Reporter this year was talking about 
having to scale it back because it just is beyond the seams. Like, it can't quite handle how many people are there. And also, it talked about how originally it was for the filmmakers. Yeah. But now you have, you know, the cast and the producers and then the, the entourages. And not that I have an entourage, but my agents were so excited. It was my first festival. Sure. First time at Sundance. And one of my agents also had two other actors who were at Slamdance. Oh. So it was just a great opportunity. So I had, we had a little posse, but it was just really tricky. And even the night that XYZ films, I think they had five films at Sundance, XX being one of them. Mm-hmm. But the fact that we were four filmmakers, four producers, four writers, with four sets of cast, it was kind of like... Um, it's a lot to manage. It's a lot to manage. They were at capacity by the time Yvonne got there and didn't have ID. So I don't even think she went into her own party. And then the elevation sickness is a real thing. I, I thought that just meant that you might get drunk faster. No, uh, and no. I wasn't drinking. I thought I would be fine feeling a little bit strange and then also every other window is selling cans of oxygen <clears throat> should have been a clue but yeah my agent within like the first few minutes was just like shaking and that and then the ladies at the restaurant are like it's okay if you're gonna pass out here's a nice little settee we'll get you an apple and some gatorade call a cab but the cab couldn't get there so she never she ended up finding the second wind and making it at least to you know another party where we could sneak in a couple of pieces of bread and <laughs> yeah, was, we weren't that hard done by but it was it's a it's a thing yeah it's not a town made for movie going i mean it's it's kind of great because it gives you the 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 explanation for all the weird like the 10 million dollar sales of movies that turn out to be not that great of course you're you're experiencing whatever that hpns thing is where you can barely process information of course you're going to laugh harder at a comedy up there than you would down uh, down at ground level or sea level right uh happy texas i think is the, the big record the one with william h macy and steve zahn yeah like 2004 maybe it got bigger last at the ele- at seven thousand yeah. feet than yeah. it did on and, the ground and miramax snapped it up for 10 million dollars and then it came out and people were just like really okay that's nice yeah, yeah. oh wow that's so funny there's always one there was some laughs in our film the yeah. Andy Clark segment, the birthday party. They're intentional. They're supposed to be there. Yeah. 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 I mean, I like it when there's sort of, um, what was it? In the, I mean, to me, again, when costumes are sort of used as, as comedy without, I mean, there's so much rich material that is comedic in, in Strictly Ballroom, but I kind of like when, for example, like Narcos. Mm-hmm. Narcos is not, there's nothing really funny in yeah. that series. But his 80s Benetton rugby shirts while he's murdering someone with a cue stick. Right. <laughs> it's just kind of like when the comedy's sort of there for you to find. And um, But yeah, XX, not uh, yeah, a few laughs, I think, because you're looking for it also, too, in a horror. Well, you need the release, right? You That's, need the release. Yeah. yeah. Those are the most successful. Those are the best ones for me, I think. Well, the box is the mm-hmm. first segment. So the uh, Yavanka segment that I was a part of, it's the first one. It sort of sets the tone. Mm-hmm. Even though there is no real tone, I shouldn't really say that, but it's definitely bleak. And the one thing I noticed at Sundance was, you know that you're expecting these four shorts, but when you watch the first short, you're not exactly sure how it's going to go. And then um, the, these beautiful, creepy animation segments that sort of seam it all together right. um, by Sofia Carrillo. So as soon as the box ended, it's over, and it, it ends in a very bleak way. Sure. And then you have this you know, creepy, cool animation that starts. So so people are just still watching. Yeah. But then the next segment, the second segment, is Annie Clark's The Birthday Party, which is m- much lighter and brighter and, 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 and darkly comedic. Mm. And so when it ends, it's just this, like, everyone clapping. And <laughs> and then comes the animation, and now we know, okay, so we can clap after each one. And I, I left her thinking this was so great, but people didn't clap after the box. 
thought they were just sort of rocking back and forth. That's, yeah, that's a more appropriate yeah, response. They didn't clap after a segment. Only because I think they were just so floored. Yeah, I would think that's the appropriate response. Yeah. So um, it may not tie in directly to XX, but the final question on the podcast is always the same, which is, is there anything of Strictly Ballroom that you've incorporated into your own work, your, you know, like your creative DNA? Is there stuff that you've borrowed or lifted or stolen? Um, or just used as a touchstone? <laughs> And my first acting class was, can you use your eyebrows less? I wasn't sure if I can blame it on Strictly Ballroom for being overly expressive with my face. I'm overly gesticulative. I blame my Italian side. Um, overly expressive. So I find that uh, working in comedy, I could draw in a lo- little bit more of, you know, my jazz hands upbringing. Right. That's not frowned upon. But when you're working in drama and, you know, horror, it's okay. I mean... But there's just been a much more subtle style to the work that I've been doing for the last long time where I find I need to sit on my hands. Um, so I keep saying, you know, after uh, after Sophie on CBC was a comedy, and I mean, that was a ton of fun. Mm-hmm. Um, but after that, I started working on a more dramatic series. And, you know, after the subject matter of the strain, and then I worked on this amazing psychological horror called um, Channel Zero Candle Cove. Oh, yeah. Um, with some amazing filmmakers who'd never done television before. Uh, Craig McNeil, who did The Boy. Oh, this is the um, the only thing I know of Channel Zero is the photo, the, the image that circulates of the tooth guy. Yes. That's the only way I would describe that. Yes. And I'm kind of scared to find out why there's a tooth guy. It's actually, I mean, it, one of the writers, uh, Harley Payton from Twin Peaks. Mm-hmm. And um, Nick Antosca from Hannibal. But it's like, it's highbrow psychological horror, I oh, promise great. you. It was like universally lauded as one of the best most refreshing new things on television but again very dark and I just keep thinking I need to do a comedy (laughs) I can just use my hands again so and also in Strictly Ballroom I think the idea that um, both in this movie and Saturday Night Fever which is another favorite of mine Mm -hmm. um, I mean the male lead is of course like the best dancer but the female lead you know she brought so much more to the role it wasn't just about being the best yeah it was about bringing yourself and I feel like I, I actually came into this um, career later in life, always sort of feeling like I have to play catch up and I'm still taking classes and always having, having to study. And it's hard not to compare yourself to some of the great people that you're surrounded by, whether, whether on set, um, whether it's Corey Stoll or Fiona Shaw. I can you, imagine. Yeah. You know, um, but again, it's just about really, you know, like Fran, you don't have to be the most accomplished dancer to win the competition mm-hmm. and it's also not about winning right. you know that's I think the most important thing is like they think it's all about winning and it's not it's about you know artistic satisfaction yeah so I think that is something I've definitely carried throughout my time working within you know film and TV is it's not it's never about winning it's never about getting the right role it's never about being the best it's really just about you know finding artistic integrity and being true to yourself right. so yes have you tried to slip flamenco into anything? I have. <laughs> the second season of The Strain. Because mm. um, once I turned into a vampire, we, we worked exclusively with an amazing choreographer, Roberto Campanello, who's uh, a dancer in his own right who came from companies in Italy and danced with the National here okay. and has his own company, um, Pro Arte Danza. They're incredible. They perform at Harborfront. Mm. And he's a wonderful choreographer. And so he came up with the physicality to give some kind of uniformity, Guillermo had hired him right. to come up with this look and feel of the movement of the vampires. And um, so I worked exclusively with him, and I tried to take so many classes that would help me break out of this linear pattern of movement. 
because we wanted to make very sure that the Strigoi, the vampires in the strain, are mm-hmm. very distinct from the Z word, right. zombies, and to be distinct from shows like The Walking Dead. They're not brainless. They have agency. There's an intelligence. They have a hive-like mind, you know. So I took uh, every class I could think of, including flamenco and modern dance and mime and and because i you know a lot of movement classes whether you know even yoga can be very linear and a lot of dance can be linear so anything to sort of break out of that so i started to use some of the hand and finger articulation that i picked up in flamenco you sort of see that in some of my twitching i think in the second season it helped anyway nice it helped yeah and it was nice just to be able to work in a more visceral way because television sometimes can feel like hit hit your mark and say the words. Sure. And you can feel a bit like a talking head a lot. So it was great to just like the entire second season, I could count on my hands how many lines of dialogue I had. It was just a much more physical, visceral performance. And even Guillermo had said to me, well, I think it's maybe that small town tap jazz ballet background that somehow came in handy, you know? Um, so yeah, it's just great to work in a more physical way. Inspiration can come from anywhere. Yeah, it can. My thanks to Natalie Brown, who you can see in theaters this Friday in XX. And in fact, if you're in Toronto, you can literally see her at the Carlton Cinemas on Friday night with director Yovanka Vukovic and other members of the cast and crew. Thanks also to Winnie Wong. She knows what she did. You can find Natalie on Twitter at brownmiss, B-R-O-N-N-M-I-S-S. And you can find Strictly Ballroom on DVD in Canada under the Old Alliance imprint and in the U.S. on Blu-ray and DVD from Lionsgate. It's also available for sale and rental on iTunes. As always, you can find me on Twitter at Norm Wilner and elsewhere on the internet at NowToronto.com. You can also find this podcast on Twitter at Semcast, S-E-M-Cast, and on the web at SomeoneElsesMovie.com. If you want to leave a review on iTunes, that would be very kind of you. I will not perform it to the Bogo Poco. Thanks for listening. <laughs>